Podcast. I'm your host Brian, and with me today is Bear Knox. How you doing, sir? Hey, good evening. Salutations. Glad to be here as always. Opening the finest box of wine, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad you could join me today. Uh, today we're going to take a look at Navy Flight School, um, which was a pretty interesting interview. I think uh, I learned a lot about something that I, I'd never really thought too much about, but a very different system than, than I think you and I are used to. Yeah, it was an engaging interview. I appreciate him coming on and uh, giving his perspective. I'd like to hear that how the if you can line up somebody from the Air Force too. But um, yeah, talking about the old TH fifty seven versus the sixty sevens, we grew up on pretty similar aircraft, but a lot of the same experiences. Uh, pipeline's a lot different. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, remarkably different. But we'll get into that uh, first. Before we do, I wanted to over some questions. So we had these questions for the last episode. I know we weren't able to get you on uh, just with timing and everything, but uh, I, I thought you would have a little bit uh, a little bit more to add than, than just me on this one. Uh, so the first question is from Sid, who's one of our uh, Patreon supporters, and he says, uh, the year is 2000. You have risen to the top in the hierarchy of the United States of Blue Rovia. Um, and uh, on the brink of symmetrical conventional war with the Reds and is currently looking for a helicopter design to replace its existing scout helicopters. You've been asked to drop specifications. So it's a pretty big question, pretty in-depth. Yeah. I'm going to kind of shorten it down. So uh, I think what he's basically asking is what does the ideal scout helicopter have? What capability, what component, what is the one thing if you could put on or make sure it has, what what would that be? What do you think? Okay. So, as I'm parsing out this question, there's a lot of there's a lot of particulars that he wants to get to. So the year 2000, this is pre-coin. We are just coming off of a decade of peace, basically. The Soviet Empire has fallen in the early 90s. We crushed the Iraqis uh, about 10 years prior due to the army and air force and navy that we had built up to defeat the Soviets. Um, the money is short in the late 90s to the 2000s, so it's a very kind of specific question. And he, so in my mind's eye, he's alluding towards if you were to des- design Comanche, what, <laughs> what would you what would you want on it? Um, all right. So in in that time frame, none of us were looking towards or thinking about reengaging in the asymmetrical. Uh, Vietnam-style fight that we've been tied up with for the, since then. Uh, so our training, our equipment, everything was definitely geared towards fighting a near-peer or peer threat a la the Soviets or the Chinese or the North Koreans, etc. So the, I forget who said it, but there's a sa- famous saying, generals always think about fighting the last war they fought. Um, and that, that's what they think about the next war about. So the perfect scout helicopter in those days, um, speed is one aspect. So to get from your rear area where your support operations are to the, to the fight, speed is one aspect of that. I think the 
requirements folks in those days were also really engaged in thinking about stealth. So that's the era of the F-117, the B-2, the F-22, all of which were geared almost completely towards stealth technology, right? So they're looking at a high threat radar environment, much like we're seeing again today. So So the designers of the Perfect Scout helicopter in those days were definitely thinking about stealth. So in terms of the shape of the airframe as being non-reflective to radar signals. They're also thinking about how to suppress your heat signature. Uh, They're also thinking about how to suppress emissions. So um, communications being integral to the scout role. Uh, How do you minimize your electromagnetic signature, so to speak? Um, And Comanche was all those things. So super great engine, uh, two-person aircraft with lots of sensors, um, enough punch to fight the reconnaissance fight, which would mean um, being able to go toe-to-toe with the reconnaissance assets of the adversary. So BMPs, BTRs, uh, MTLBs, uh, ZSU-23-4s, um, SA-9 to SA-13 and beyond in the forward elements of the Soviet-style doctrinal horde coming forward. All right. So that that's a lot of things to think about. So to sum it up, what is the one thing I want in 2000 in my scout helicopter? It is number one, beyond anything else, is sensor and communication capability. Second is survivability. So whether that be stealth or passive technology to active technology that can actively defeat the enemy in the electromagnetic or visual spectrum, uh, and then the ability to survive. So aviation survivability equipment, ASE, in the form of jammers, um, IR defeat mechanisms, counter missile systems such as lasers. So in order of precedence, it's... um, sensors and communications, then maneuverability and speed, then survivability, and lastly, probably would be armament. Um, and different people would probably cater- or rank those maybe a little bit differently, or some of them are pretty close to the others, but that that's my kind of perfect helicopter right there. I really wish we had Comanche today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, as I think about it, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with some of those. I, I think my primary was, uh, you know, detection and threat, uh, you know, countering capability. So, uh, you know, you and I flew 58s when we didn't have flares and then they, they tacked them on and, and I know you got to play with them a little bit. I had them, you know, flying around on Apaches and stuff and that, that's great. And that's a cool system, the ALQ-144, but I just think a more robust package you know, as technology changes, you know, we had some newer equipment that came out that could do some different things. Uh, without getting too deep into that. But I think that for me as a scout, is probably one of the number one because, you know, I, I get it, the speed um, getting from the rear area to the front. Yep, that's a good thing. Um, but it doesn't help me once I've crossed the front lines because I'm, exactly, not, yeah. you know, I'm not going fast. Like I don't, you know, I don't, I don't need to really to go fast. 
Um, there's a certain speed that I need to be operating and my ability to detect and counter threats and then react and, and, and counteract them is going to decide operationally my speed, right? So it's not a mechanical speed that I'm worried about. It's a, it's a tempo, operational tempo speed that, that, that would enhance. So I'm in agreement uh, with that one, definitely. And I never thought about it, but, you know, as you're talking here, I was, I was thinking about Desert Storm. And what I think a lot of people don't know is that, you know, the opening shots in Desert Storm were actually Apaches. Uh, so it mm-hmm. wasn't F-117s and it wasn't, uh, you know, a fixed wing aircraft at all, but it was Apaches. And then you think about stealth and why do we want a Comanche? Well, that was a perfect environment where you do want something that can get in close to those radar systems in that case and, and eliminate them that, that then allows the fixed wing to go in and do their job. Yeah, I think, and you and I, you know, we think in terms of situational awareness a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what I didn't mention there was, or or as part of the sensor suite and communications suite, um, and taking a step back, going back to what you said about the speed and maneuverability, that's certainly not anywhere near the top of my list. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a nice to have. Um, but like you said, especially in a high threat environment, speed is not necessarily your friend. And uh, in terms of scouting, the faster you go, the less you know. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a, a definite plateau and then a trade-off where uh, if you're going beyond 40, 60 knots, you're really not seeing a whole lot. You're just kind of trying not to hit things. Mm. So your ability to collect information the faster you go is a, is a logarithmic scale to the bottom. Um, but the, the ability to be aware more than your enemy is aware, I think. So that information technology and in the scouting role, whether you go from Vietnam where you had no sensors except the Mark one eyeball, um, to today where you have situational fusion, you know, blending space spectrum to air spectrum to ground spectrum collection, all of which is fused into one situational picture like the F-35 can do that. Comanche would have done it. Um, but I think above all else, and putting it in terms of DCS gameplay, you know, we see every day the one who sees first, shoots first, kills first. Mm-hmm. So if you, can, if you can find the enemy and see him before he can see you, you have a clear and distinct advantage. So, yeah, uh, the, the ultimate scout aircraft is survivable, but more than anything else, I think it's able to collect situational awareness better than anything else out there. Sure. Okay. All right. We'll move on to our second question. Uh, this is from another Patreon supporter. Uh, it goes by Atlas. And his question is, how much of your training is geared towards a peer-to-peer conflict and how much of it towards asymmetrical warfare? Uh, and he goes on to basically explain, you know, we, we seem to spend a lot of time and money for the peer-to-peer threat, but uh, the past 20 years has shown us that we've been doing a lot of the asymmetric warfare type, uh, been in that type of environment. So, uh, I mean, I certainly have my thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, this question seems to tie into the first one mm-hmm. very nicely, right? So I mentioned Desert One uh, to the 90s and then, you know, kind of the Clinton administration and the big drawdowns and um so money is always a factor but uh from the mid 70s through the 80s certainly in the reagan years um so the 80s were dedicated towards 
uh, reestablishing our military dominance on the global platform. And we did that. And arguably, the money spent is what defeated the Soviet Union. They just couldn't keep up with Star Wars and the Big Five, the M1, the Bradley, um, M2, um, the F-15, the B-1, the F-117, the Paladin. Uh, those aren't the Big Five. I've, the UH-60, the AH-64. So the platforms that we developed in the 70s to defeat the Soviets in the 80s are what broke the Iraqis in a matter of 100 hours in the early 90s. And we're still reaping the dividends from that. So you always, uh, in terms of like military planning, we have to think about it. There's basically two ways we look at things. The enemy most likely course of action and the enemy most dangerous course of action. Hmm. So you always expect one, but you got to plan for the other. Um, yeah. And that's that's the unknown, really. We've We've focused on the asymmetric fight for the last 20 years because that's the fight we've been in. And arguably, it's really hurt us. We're seeing it in readiness now. Uh, all the money that we've spent for the past 20 years has gone almost exclusively just to sustain the force we have rather than develop the force that we need in the future. So that's the point we're at now is we, we stopped development in the late mid tens to the late tens and all those developmental programs that take 15 years to come to fruition were stopped because almost a hundred percent of the dollars that are in the budget process for the United States anyway, went to just sustaining the force that we had. That's why Comanche was canceled because we couldn't afford to keep developing it because that money that came out of the, the bust Comanche program went to buy the modernized TADs on the Apache. It bought a couple hundred more Blackhawks. It funded the CH-47F. Comanche money did all those things. Um, and so that's why maybe I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but this is just to kind of build a picture of why we focus on one. It's because if we don't, if we don't look forward to what the threat could be, right now we're thinking in terms of 2028 to 2040 as the pacing threat. So when we're looking on the global stage, what are our potential adversaries doing today in terms of economic power, in terms of political um, political dominance in the world? What do they want to achieve? Where do they want to be in 15 years? And how are they going to do that? And a lot of our, so we call that a pacing threat. Where do we think the Chinese are going to be? in 2035? Where do we think the Soviets are going to be in 2035? And they're, believe me, they're spending a lot of money to counter our technological advantage. And our technological advantage has eroded to, and I don't think this is classified or, you know, not anything that nobody doesn't know, but it's eroded to the point where we're on near parity in many cases, which for, for the U.S. military is kind of a new place to be. So now we're having a look 15 years down the road to develop transformational technology rather than evolutionary technology. So I hope that answers the question somewhat. Yeah, because what you're saying is we've just kind of become stagnant because we're in the, the short fight, you know, and, and, and having to focus on the right now as opposed to before we were uh, had a view towards the future, which Comanche is just an example of that view. All right, so my answer is a little bit more to the point of 
you have to train for the worst case scenario. Um, and I, I had this question a lot of times when I was an instructor at Fort Benning and guys would say, well, why are we doing these, uh, these near peer scenarios that I was always making them do, you know, I'm going to deploy and go to Iraq and, and, and fight this, you know, this coin fight. And my argument is always like, okay, which one is the most casualty producing type fight? Is it a peer, you know, peer to peer fight or is it an asymmetric fight? Um, and, and the reality is that the worst case scenario, the scariest environment imaginable is going to be that peer to peer fight. So if you're not prepared for that, you know, that's going to get you versus if you waltz into an asymmetric fight completely unprepared, it's going to suck and it's going to hurt, but you're going to get through it. Um, and that's kind of the way I always looked at it is I want to be prepared for that worst case scenario. And, and that's why I think a lot of our training, um, you know, it does focus, uh, if you're getting ready to deploy, of course, it's going to be focused more on the asymmetric threat because that's what you're getting ready to go do. But I think, uh, at least it's been my experience that units that aren't really preparing to deploy, they are focused, uh, much more on that. What if type scenario? Yeah. And so getting to that training aspect, right? So I will give you a specific example. So when, or the second year after the, the war kicked off, uh, this would have been 2004. Um, I was in Germany in one, four cavalry, uh, part of the first infantry division in Schweinfurt. We got notified uh, as part of the surge after uh, 3ID did their thunder run into Baghdad, et cetera. We were going to support them coming in from the north through Turkey. Well, two months prior to that, I was in Hohenfels fighting the Soviets, uh, you know, notional, Hmm. but uh, we deployed and set up our forward bases and we were training masking on masking and, you know, uh, looking for the... uh, Core reconnaissance platoon and the advance guards motorized uh, motorized battalion coming through, and we're looking for the doctrinal um, mechanized fight coming through the Fulda Gap, and uh, you know rolling into Eastern Europe. We were still preparing for that in 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Nobody had practiced running, diving, fire. Um, you know, putting a grease pencil mark on the windscreen, like that, that was not a thing that was for lack of a better word, technology that had been forgotten, or I should say it was techniques that had been forgotten. We deployed to Kuwait. We spend our two to three weeks there getting our equipment ready to go. And on the push North from Kuwait to cross the wire to go to Samara, where we were at at the time, we thought we were going to be fighting our way in. So we we flew six hours at 50 feet going underneath wires, <laughs> um, thinking, you know, this is the real deal. Uh, getting getting gas, you know, every hour and a half to two hours at forward realm refuel points on the way north um, and not really flying the tactics that we would consequently fly once we got into country just because we didn't know we thought we were going to be dodging surface air missiles and heat seekers you know on the way in there um it didn't turn out that way like most of everything was already attrited and it was a fairly non-eventful flight north but uh we didn't know that um and then over the next two weeks as we were ripping out with the unit that we were relieving uh, they were telling us, you know, it's mostly gun rocket fights where, you know, not shooting a lot of hellfires in those days. Um, so all the hellfire racks were taken off and replaced with exclusively gun rocket. 
Um, and we learned literally on the fly how to do running diving fire, how to develop those TTPs. Um, and it came naturally. Like there's, there's sort of an intuitive way to do those things. Mm -hmm. And there's techniques. There's not a lot of training. But we had trained to fight the Soviet mechanized force up until that point. And that's what our equipment was structured to fight. Mm -hmm. So the training in those days was geared still towards um, – Un, I don't, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, being being a deterrent, uh, and then a reaction to the mechanized fight coming through Eastern European plains. We were not prepared to fight the coin fight in the Middle East, and then that's all we've done for the last 18 years. And now we're kind of not prepared to fight to fight the high the large scale combat operations. So we're kind of relearning that's that stuff again. Sure. And ultimately, there's a, a bit of a misnomer that it's one or the other, right? They're, they're all kind of mixed together. And, mm -hmm. you know, any any trip to the uh, a combat training center will, will show you that you're, you're going to have to kind of deal with both um, and, and be prepared for both. But yeah, yeah, I, I think your, your example is great that you can be prepared for that high intensity type situation and more easily, more fluidly uh move into that asymmetric fight but but i think trying to do it the opposite way is 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 very very dangerous very difficult and from a te from a uh a technology equipment standpoint it's the same thing right so we've seen the air force lately uh, i can't remember what type of aircraft but they're they're looking at this uh this fixed wing turboprop or something to use as like a cast platform uh in an asymmetric coin environment Sure, you know that's great, and it's purpose built for that. But you can't take that and then put it up against MIGs, you know, and you can't put it yeah. up against these really uh, double-digit, high-intense uh, SAM systems. But you can take an A10, an F35, an F22, all these things, and 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 sort of devolve it into a coin platform if you have to. So it's not perfect, but it'll definitely work. And so maybe one further thing: the 2000s have been has been the dawn of the age of the UAV, right? Mm. Um, we really didn't use those prior to 2004, 2005, the air force and, you know, they had their high altitude global Hawk stuff, but very, very limited utilization. Whereas today you don't do anything without UAVs. Yeah. However, I, and I, I haven't read or seen a lot of analysis, um, we we on the on our side spend a, a lot of time trying to figure out how to how to counter UAVs nowadays, and I wonder as we as we think about large scale combat operations again, where is the place of the UAV in that? Are they going to be able to survive um, like they have in a relatively uncontested airspace that we have dominated for the last thirty plus years? Yeah. Um, so if, if you're, if you go into airspace with a slow moving, relatively unmaneuverable, remotely piloted vehicle, how well can it survive in a integrated air defense environment? I don't know. Yep. Time will tell, I guess. Yep. Um, well, yeah, no, it's good. Um, and for anyone else who's got some questions, please send them to us at, uh, the lull of the hall podcast at gmail.com. And we also have a Facebook page now and Reddit, so you can find us there and just send us whatever questions you have. Uh, super helpful. It's great for us to have something to kind of discuss and also gives us some ideas for future topics for shows. Uh, but speaking of shows, we're, we'll go ahead and transition into the interview with uh, Navy Lieutenant Alex Castillo. 
who uh, took some time recently to sit down with me and share his experience in Navy flight school. I thought it was really great and interesting to learn about, and I hope you guys enjoy. All right, hey, we're here with Alex Castillo, who's a uh, Navy lieutenant flying Seahawks. How you doing, Alex? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, not too bad, not too bad. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Sure did. A uh, little bit of a lonely Thanksgiving this year since we can't see anybody, but, you know, what can you do? Yeah, yeah. well, sometimes it's a blessing and a curse. kind of depends on your family, but, yeah, I'm with you. Definitely. <laughs> not, not any traveling. All right, well, I appreciate you coming on today, and, you know, the focus, like we talked about, is uh, really want to dive into to Navy flight school. So you're actually our first uh, non-Army uh, guest. Um, actually, I take that back. We had a Marine, but he wasn't a pilot, so you're our first non-Army pilot on the show. Uh, and I wanted to talk about uh, the Navy flight school experience. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Marines go through the Navy flight school as well, right? It's all joined together, or is it something separate? Correct. It's uh, Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. I'll okay. go through the exact same flight school all the way up through wings. So we're all naval aviators. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. All right, cool. Well, we'll dig into that. But first, you know, just give us a little intro about who you are and, and a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you're at right now. All right. Uh, I'm from New Mexico, small town south of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to the University of Arizona and majored in business management. So for people who are trying to pick majors, obviously I can do it with business management. Uh, you can definitely get it get it there. <laughs> I uh, commissioned through officer candidate school. So I was a, just a normal civilian all the way through college. After graduation, I went and went to officer candidate school for 12 weeks in Newport, Rhode Island. And then I went through flight school and I'm currently flying H-60 Sierra in flying search and rescue in Washington State. Okay. So you went through college and for whatever reason, didn't do any sort of ROTC, but then kind of at the, at the tail end decided you, you wanted to join the military or was this sort of a, a planned it was something I'd always been interested in. Uh, when I was a sophomore, a buddy of mine in the business school was doing, he was a prior Marine, but he had was doing a marketing project working with the Navy on some recruiting uh, programs. And the one I did was called Baccalaureate Degree Completion Program. It was too good of a deal, so it's not really around anymore. But basically, I was contracted between the summer of my sophomore and junior year and to basically finish college. And then when I was done with college, I went straight to officer candidate school. I had about a month off and then reported in June. Okay. Um, and I think that's interesting to highlight, you know, for people that are looking to the future of a, a military career and, and not just aviation, but in general, is that, you know, it's, it's not too late. If you're already in college, there's different ways to, to go about that as well. So, okay. Um, Definitely. All right. So, you graduated from college in, you said, 2011? Yes. Okay. And then, so at that point, you were you went through OCS. Uh, you said it was 12 weeks. And that's just, you know, for those who don't know, officer candidate school. So that's uh, just learning the basics, right? I mean, that's essentially basic training for officers. Um, you're cramming yep. all of the, the four-year ROTC experience and all of the other things that come along with that into this time period uh where you're just getting indoctrinated essentially into everything <laughs> everything military is that pretty rough experience or is it kind of a gentleman's course uh oh no it, it was it was 
a little rough. Uh, the it's actually run by primarily Marine drill instructors. Oh my! So these are all uh, gunnery sergeants, few staff sergeants, mostly mostly gunnery sergeants who already did a tour at a uh, Marine um, boot camp, uh, and they then come o- come over to a Navy OCS, and along with Navy senior enlisted, kind of make make the officers. Okay. All right. Well, that's, yeah, that had to be an exciting time. Um, <laughs> that's okay. one word for it. Yeah. And so through OCS, I, I'm imagining that it's a, a similar to the ROTC process where there's probably some sort of order of merit list where people are putting in what they want. And then based on their uh, performance, that's then being, you know, they're, they're weighting those things against each other and say, okay, you're, you're top of the class. This is what you want. This is what we have available. This is what you get. For Navy OCS, you actually are contracted to a job prior to getting there. Hmm. So I was contracted to be a pilot. I would, at a bare minimum, get a shot at flight school. So uh, if I had gone to flight school and failed out or, you know, I quit, it would have been a different story. But I was guaranteed the option to go to flight school. Now, there were some people in my OCS class who were had medical issues, so they weren't able to go. So I think the two the two guys in my class specifically both became intelligence officers. But uh, you're at least short of getting medically disqualified, you are guaranteed a shot at flight school. So same goes with uh, surface warfare or naval flight officers. So the guys who ride in the back seat, uh, you are you already know what you're going to do when you get there. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's got to be a little bit reassuring. Then at least you know you know what you're in for versus just kind of luck of the draw. Definitely. Yeah. I didn't, that was a good kind of selling point with Navy OCS. I was also looking at Marine Corps OCS and one of the big selling points with Navy was that I was guaranteed a pilot spot. Um, and there are guys who I had one guy from my OCS class who he graduated, got to flight school and he did couple hours and decided he hated it and that was it he was out of the navy <laughs> yeah okay all right so they didn't recycle him into something else or uh no because force them to get the, over the, it. right the benefit with ocs is the navy really hasn't spent any money on you mm. we're kind of the we're kind of the fillers so when they don't have enough people at rotc or academy they're able to kind of turn on and off the spigot real easy with ocs uh, is there an option, let's say you complete that, is there an option to then go over to the Marines? Uh, not, not at that stage. I have heard of people going uh, blue to green, mm-hmm. but I, it's been much later on mm-hmm. after they got wings, basically. Sure. Okay. Okay. All right. So you finish OCS and then what happens next? So then everybody moves to uh, Pensacola, Florida, the cradle of naval aviation. Um, So we all head down there. The first thing you do, if you do not have already have a private pilot's license, you go through introductory flight screen, uh, IFS. So that's at one of about when I was going through about four or five different civilian flight schools in northwest Florida and southern Alabama. I went in uh, Foley, Alabama. I went through my training. You do uh, the standard FAA uh, student pilot test, and then you do 12 hours just in a Cessna or a Piper with a civilian flight instructor, and then you get all the way up to solo. So then you go solo in your Piper, you do a couple laps in the pattern, 
and then you are done. They do the whole shirt cutting thing that I, yeah. I think you mentioned in one of your previous uh, episodes about, yeah. and uh, and then that's it. So that's really that's the initial weeding out, and that's where my buddy who I talked about, that's where he decided, you know, this is just not for me. He, I don't even know that he got in the aircraft. He, he just was studying it. He looked at us, a couple other buddies who are really into it. And he's like, do you guys actually like this? <laughs> and we did. And he, he apparently had a come to Jesus moment where he realized it just was not for him. Yeah. Wow. We had a guy, uh, in my class in my, what we call primary. And, um, Every single flight, at least this is what he told us, every single flight when he was sitting in the back of the aircraft uh, as the, the passenger student, he would throw up into his shirt <laughs> as if to hold it, you know. And we we're like, well, why don't you just take a bag with you? And I, I think it was a mental block for him that, you know, he, I, I'm going to get over this. If I bring a bag, it's like admitting failure. So. <laughs> um, I did when... And during IFS, my first first ever flight in a small aircraft, I was sitting in the back. It was pretty hot, and I, I got yeah. a little airsick. They dropped me off, and I just sat on the side of the runway while the other student did his his pat his uh, laps, and then I got back in, and I was fine. But, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that some people don't understand kind of what you just pointed out. When it is hot, and you're in a small aircraft, you know, it doesn't take much. For you know a Cessna or I assume a Piper as well. I don't know how heavy a Piper is, but you know these are very light aircraft considering the things that that you and I have flown since then. Um, it doesn't take much to kind of bump them around in the sky. And when this is a hot day and you're sitting in the back or or not, you know, not actively on the controls, it can mess with you real fast. Definitely, especially when the guy at the controls also has zero hours in any <laughs> yeah. kind of aircraft. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so you guys show up, and, and you made a point that if you do not already have a, a pilot's license of some sort, at, at least a, a private license, that you're going to go through this FAA, essentially, training. But, but you don't come out of that with a FAA cert- certificate, do you? You don't get licensed through that? Uh, just student pilot. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so so really nothing. Right. Um, no, it's, it's literally just a weeding out... Um, stage for you to figure out if it's something you like and them to figure out if you have any sort of aptitude for it right and uh, just to save the navy money before investing significant amount of money getting you actually trained up to be a an aviator sure yeah because i mean the amount of money just just for a helicopter pilot i mean that in the civilian world is not cheap right it's it's relatively cheap to get your fixed wing license you know just using a small engine uh you know single engine plane but Okay, so they're using that to weed people out. That makes sense. Um, all right, so you finish that. Well, if well, if you showed up with a a private license already, you just skip that phase completely. Correct. Okay. All right, so you complete that, and then what's the next step? So the next is uh, advanced pre-flight indoctrination (API). So this is uh, almost all classroom. It's still in Pensacola. This is so now you kind of re- reunite with the guys who already had private licenses or or above. And uh, you go through academics, um, PT, and water survival. So the academics is the whole course, I think it's six weeks. I don't know. I imagine it's still about the same. You basically learn a new subject roughly once a week. So a couple different levels of aerodynamics, weather, and navigation were the big ones. 
And it's basically just kind of getting everyone a baseline knowledge, more of the terms really that uh, that's going to be used throughout flight school. So real generic, general to all aviation, whether you're flying big, big aircraft, helicopters or whatever. Uh, also coupled with that is uh, a decent amount of PT, nothing crazy and uh, water survival. So you go to the pool, trying to think it was, it was at least once or twice a week. And they do, you know, do you do the helo dunker? Yeah. So I'm not sure if the army does that. Yeah, we do. Um, sure do. Where you, okay. So getting the, getting the fake helicopter in the water, goes in the water, flips upside down, all that fun stuff. And then that culminates with a, a mile swim in a flight suit. So you have to be able to pass that in order to finish API. Okay. Yeah, so that's worth talking about the dunker training because I don't think we really covered that in the uh, the army segment, but we we do do that not to nearly to the extent it sounds like you guys are doing it, which which makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, for us it's a I want to say it's like a three day course, and I think the first day was was totally academic, and then you're in the pool and you had did you guys have like the little chair um, yep. in a cage, and you had to kind of like get out of the the cage, and then you oh, learn yeah. how to use the little heads bottle. It had like two minutes yep. of oxygen. Yeah, so it sounds like your your initial is basically the same as our our requal uh, that we have to do once every three or four years. Yeah, so there was a lot of swimming. There was uh, a parachute drag, mm. so simulating you know if you were to eject or bail out, sure, uh, you get dragged through the water doing that. So that's that's fun because you're in a flight suit and all your gear and it's splashing up in your face and you got to get off the parachute. Uh, so a little more stuff. And again, API it kind of sets a baseline knowledge for you, but it's also uh, a weed out. So people who just don't have the aptitude or the drive sure. to go, um, that's really what it's used for. Yeah, because at this stage too, you're saying this is all naval aviator candidates essentially. That you know this right. is airframe. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what airframe because because at this point you don't even know. So this stage is also a naval flight officer. So NFOs, the okay. guys guys who sit in the back, and it's Marine, Air, Navy, and Coast Guard, Na- NFOs, and pilots. So okay. everybody all together. Okay. And you talked about the 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 dunker part, which is you know for for the listeners who, who maybe don't know, you know, like you said, it's it's almost like a cockpit type device um and i think we even had like a cargo area in the back but i can't remember and it it it, you know you sit in these different seats and and they'll put us in at least for us they put us in these different situations where okay you're going to go underwater and you can't get out of the left side so everybody has to go out the right side or we're going to go underwater and it's going to flip upside down and you can only go out the left side or in this case we're going to put a blindfold on you and you had to get out does that sound pretty much the same that's exactly yeah yeah, that's uh that that definitely weeds out the the men from the boys. <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely, I mean, and they'll they'll give you every opportunity to succeed. I mean, sure. I know guys who had to do several weeks of remediation, but they eventually they eventually got through. Yeah. Okay. So API, you said is about six weeks. Is that what you said? Six weeks. Okay. And you're not flying at all during this. This is all academic. Nope. No okay. flying at all. It's academics, the water survival, and PT. And uh, I forgot we also have the hypoxia chamber, sure. which is always funny. That's like a one-day thing where you go to this chamber and they just suck all the air out so you can feel what hypoxia hmm. feels like. Um, so 
that you're playing patty cake with a guy across from you and you slowly both realize that neither of you are operating very well. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's a fun one. And I know there's videos on YouTube of people losing it in there. Yeah. So that is that's a one day thing that you do during API as well. Okay. All right. So API concludes and then what's next after that? All right. So at the end of that, once everyone everyone graduates, navigation's the last test, you get you get to wear your flight suit. You have what's called flight suit Friday. Um, once everyone in your class has passed or has failed out of the program, everyone gets a flight suit, everyone goes to the officers club and you have a, a some beverages and hang out and usually all the instructors from around the base come over and you get a, a congratulations because up till then you've been wearing your khakis, uh, which is you know more of a dress uniform. So everyone's excited to get the flight suit for the first time. Uh, and then you find out whether you're going to uh, Corpus Christi or Whiting Field, which is in Milton, Florida, for primary. So that's the next stage. Um, and that's flying. Now everyone flies the T6B, which is a single-engine turboprop aircraft, all-glass cockpit. When I went through, I flew the T-34 Charlie, still a turboprop, but it was all the steam gauges, mm -hmm. uh, a little more old school. Uh, we had to... We were going to get out of the aircraft. We had to bail out with a parachute on our back, whereas the T-6 is ejection seat now. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to Corpus Christi, and you have a couple weeks of academics while you're there learning learning just the systems of the T-34, or I guess now T-6, uh, course rules for there you're going to be operating, and just the basic BAM-type stuff. So then you move into fan flights. Uh, you have, it's called the contact stage. So just learning how to fly. So it's a front and back seat. So you sit in the front, the instructor's sitting in the back. Everyone has full controls and you learn how to land. You learn how to handle spins. You learn, uh, you know, a little EP training. What happens if you have an engine failure, mm -hmm. things like that. And that culminates in a solo. So again, kind of the same as IFS. You go up, you take the aircraft by yourself, take a couple laps around the pattern, come back, and then you have what's called the tie cutting. Uh, so you go in at a thought. We had ours off base. Some people do it at the officers club. Just depends on the class, I believe. And you're, you're on wing, who is the instructor who's kind of responsible for you, cuts your you have a tie that they cut. Um, there's a lot of different theories on where that came from, but it's a old school world war two ish era thing where once a student is allowed to solo take an aircraft on their own, their instructor cuts their ties. So everyone can kind of see that right. you've progressed to that point. The next stage is, is, uh, the next stage is precision aerobatics. So about, Three or four flights, you go out with an instructor, you learn to do loops, aileron rolls, Cuban eights, split S's, all the barrel rolls, all that fun stuff. Uh, you do three or four flights, and then they send you out solo to do that. Uh, so that's you know great opportunity to take the GoPro out and get some stuff to send to the family <laughs> and uh, go out and you do that for a little bit. You come back. And then you can split one of two ways at that point. Uh, you either go into formation training or uh, 
RIs, radio instrument training. I went to forms first. So you go out, uh, you learn how to fly formation with another aircraft. So you learn, you know, mostly a lot of the work we did was kind of in the parade position and nice and tight, learn to do different maneuvers. Um, nothing too crazy. The Air Force version of this. So we have Navy guys who go through Air Force primary. They actually do aerobatic formation stuff. We don't, we don't do that in the, in the Navy side. But so kind of just general maneuvering around, learning how to work as a section. And again, that one ends and you have a solo. So you, you in one aircraft, another student, another aircraft, and an instructor in a third aircraft, just kind of watching, making sure no one gets into too much trouble. Okay. And then after forms is RIs or radio instruments. Uh, that's where you learn how to fly on instruments. So a lot of sims uh, back when I was going through the Sims were probably 60 or 70 years old and uh, the instructors were even older <laughs> and you sit in this super dark cockpit thing with just some really, really basic instruments in front of you and learn how to shoot uh, ILS approaches, PARs, you know, TACAN, you name it, you do a little bit of everything. Uh, we actually, I got canceled at one point for stims because there was a thunderstorm. That's how old the buildings were, <laughs> where these sims were. It was I got weather canceled in simulator uh, hop. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So during this, uh, you call it contact phase, is when you, yes. so you go to Corpus Christi, you're in contact phase, essentially. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So the whole every the whole program while you're in in uh corpus or whiting is called primary it's primary okay. flight training primary. Yeah, yeah the initial stage where you're just learning to kind of fly the aircraft is called contact stage right. okay all right yeah we do the same um so how long is your primary then uh i got there in late march and i left in late september so right about six months I was definitely on the fast end. They were trying to get, you know, my class was right there at the end of the fiscal year. So they kind of rammed us through. Uh, six months would definitely be on the fast side. I think most people are more in the eight to 10 month stage, or they were then. I, sure. I don't know currently. And how many hours but probably you fly that. in that time period? Uh, you, leave, you leave primary with about 100 hours in uh, in T-34 specifically, or okay. T-6 now. Okay, so circle back to an earlier question. At this point, is there an option to get your civilian ratings at all, or no? Uh, no, not yet. That'll happen after advanced, which is the next stage. Okay, um, so while you're in primary, is that a PCS move? Is that temporary duty? How does that work? So uh, I'm not sure how they're doing it right now. At the time, basically, the way they treated it was a uh, TAD or, or uh, intermediate eye stop from OCS. Hmm. Uh, there was some controversy with the way that handled because you don't make per diem while you're there, hmm. but they don't give you a move either. So I'm not sure if they've changed that now, but you do move all of your stuff. So I lived in an apartment. Uh, off base so yeah 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 that would be that would be rough for that that period of time <laughs> uh i mean i have to imagine at this point they probably do it 
like uh what what we would call I don't know if you guys have a TDY and route. Um so yeah. like when I went to the Apache course to get to go through AQC, it was a five month stint at Fort Rucker, but it was TDY between one PCS to another. Um so yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was it was kind of weird the way they handled it and we're all just these baby ensigns who don't really know any better. Right. <laughs> so we uh we just go okay, yeah, I'll go rent a U Haul and you know, give me however much, however much money you think is fair. Right. We'll call it a day. <laughs> we'll call it a day. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So primary uh, ends. At this point, you've learned. You've gotten uh, 100 hours in fixed wing. You've done all this instrument navigation training, formation training, aerobatics uh, at two different, you know, one of two different locations. All right. So that's over. What's next? You said advanced. Uh, yeah, so at the end of primary is actually a selection for your pipeline. So uh, this is where you split off. Everyone go kind of goes their separate ways, whether they're flying helicopters or Navy, helicopters, jets, P-8s, Ospreys, E-2s, or E-6s. Uh, so if you're flying helicopters, the, uh, the Marines and the Coast Guard guys kind of come with you. So the way they do the selection there is they, they just take everybody's grades. Uh, everybody puts in their input. You know, you rank, I think you rank your top three uh, pipelines that you want, and then they just make it up. So they, most of it is just what happens to be available, what the, what the Navy has open that day. Mm -hmm. So I've heard of helo drafts where everybody goes helos. I've heard of jet drafts where everybody goes jets. Right. It really just comes down to the week. Um, yeah. There was the guy, the guy who was number three, I think in my class, he wanted helos and they forced him into jets. Mm -hmm. And a couple of weeks before that, I, had, I knew some guys who did amazing in primary. They were CFII type guys who got helos, but they wanted jets. Right. So, you know, it's just kind of, it's a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah, needs of the military. I mean, that's that's true throughout, right? right? I mean, we talked about that before. That uh, in, in the army side, you could have guys that just absolutely should be attack pilots or you know whatever, and it, it doesn't matter. You know, there's no slots for Apaches, or there's a hundred slots for Apaches. So, yeah, that's yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, probably the question you've been asked at least once or twice in your life. I mean, did are you happy with what you got? Did you get what you get? Were you trying to get something different? Uh, I am happy. Uh, I when I I'll be honest. When I joined, I wanted I wanted jets. I wanted to be a a fighter pilot. Thought it was real sexy. Mm. Uh, it is. It is sexy. It's it the, oh, yeah. they're really cool, really cool aircraft to fly. Uh, and then on my aerobatic solo, I found myself. I did. You know, I did the loops. I got the video for for the fam. <laughs> And then I was just kind of flying at the bottom of my altitude box, just looking at the beach and flying kind of slow. I was like, huh, okay, that's kind of <laughs> weird. And then I had a sim instructor in primary. He's a, He was a reserve Marine Corps pilot who he flew C-130s. And he he always asked, all the instructors always asked, well, what do you want? And I said, I want jets. I want to be a fighter pilot. And he said, well, why do you want that? And my answer was kind of, well, it's awesome. I want to, right. I want to say I'm a fighter, but it's, it's cool. I want to go, <laughs> Man, you know, I want to go, top. yeah, I want to go muck 
whatever and break the speed of sound and shoot guys down and all this stuff. And he kind of told me, he's like, well, so his story was he selected F-18s as a Marine, uh, did it for a little bit and hated it. Hmm. Yeah, and he realized that the reason he wanted to fly fighters was to say he was a fighter guy, to hmm. say he was a fighter pilot. And he, so he actually swapped while he was, uh, after his, one of his first tours and swapped to C-130s. And he's like, I, and I was so much happier. Hmm. I liked the mission better. I liked the people better. And uh, so he's like, just, you know, take that. And I did a, a lot of soul searching and kind of realized that the, the Hilo guys, the Hilo lifestyle, the locations, all that w- was more, more in line with the kind of person I was. So uh, if you told me at the beginning of OCS that I would be super happy to be a Hilo guy, I would have said you're crazy. But right. now I, uh, <laughs> I can't see myself having done anything different. Yeah, well, that's an important uh, distinction that, that I think you know, guys going into this definitely need to have that, that moment and understand what is my motivation. Because um, I, I can agree. I, I think most all of us, you know, at some point in our life want to be a fighter pilot, but it's not <laughs> it's not for everyone. I mean, I can... You know, I've I've pulled very minor G's, and I'm like, eh, this is not, this doesn't work for my body. I don't really like how that feels. <laughs> um, and and as you said too, the the community, you know, it's it, there's different communities have different ways of handling things, and you got to figure out what's best for you, because you may be able to say, well, I'm a fighter pilot, or I'm a, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, in the army, you you could have guys that, you know, they're an Apache pilot, but they don't act like an Apache pilot, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 there's something to be said for, are you happy where you're at? Because then that's directly going to you know reflect in, in your performance and, and ultimately probably your safety. You know, if you're not, if you're not in it, you know, especially being, I think a fighter pilot, you probably got to be a hundred percent on board with that. And if you're not, you know, it, it may put you at some, some level of risk, you or somebody else. So, yeah, I think that's Absolutely. an important distinction to, to have an idea of what is it that I actually want at the end of the day versus what sounds cool right now. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting that you you kind of had that perspective based on not only you know, yeah, you're doing some cool maneuvers, and you know, I'm jealous. I'd love to go do that, but <laughs> you know, you kind of also recognize like, hey, I also like this other thing that I could probably do a lot more of uh, as a helicopter guy. So, so no, that's a good Definitely. point. So uh, when you're in primary, um, who are your primary instructors? Are they are they mostly? I don't know what you guys call them. We, we would call them green suitors in the army, but you know, I don't know, maybe blue suitors. But you know, are they are they military? Are they civilians? Are they contractors? How does that work? Uh, the the pilots that you fly with are exclusively military. Hmm. Um, so all military, mostly lieutenant ish a uh, few lieutenant commanders so o threes and o fours mm. uh but a few reserve guys kind of smattered in there they're a little more common in the advanced stage but in primary it's exclusively military guys that you actually fly with and then there's uh probably and actually in primary all of these sim instructors are civilian or reservists who are there in their capacity as a civilian talk talk us through how you know we we you know how you are selected for different things, the fighter track or the helo track or whatever, but is there any sort of pomp and circumstance with that? Is there any sort of ceremony at all? Or is it just, you just get a, a note or something like, how does that work? Um, I've heard some, and it depends on the squadron. Some of them do it kind of big. So there's, 
either three or four BT, so that's the primary squadrons in in Whiting Field in Milton, mm-hmm. and there's two in Corpus, and it just depends on the squadron. So my squadron, it was pretty lame. Uh, <laughs> I think there were five or six of us went into the executive officer's office, and he just kind of sat us down and said, pointed to the first person, "Okay, wh- what did what did you want? Helos. What? Okay, good, you got Helos. Second guy, what did you want?" Helos. Okay, you got Helos. Third guy. What did you want? Helos. Oh, you got Jets. And that was it. That was <laughs> any questions. And he was a Helo guy, so he kind of like, oh, good job. I'm getting Helos, but that was right. kind of it. And uh, basically, have fun and have fun in your advanced. And uh, thanks for being here. I guess it was it was pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So so you get you get told that you're a Helo guy, and now you're going where again? So now you go to uh, Whiting Field. So for the guys who are already there for primary, super easy. You just move from North Field to South Field. Uh, for me, I, I I did get a PCS out of this move. So PCS from Corpus to to back. To, I actually lived in Pensacola. Um, my wife was. We got married while we were in primary, but she was working in Pensacola, so it was easier just to make the commute. It was about a forty minute commute. So Whiting Field, uh, northeast of of Pensacola. And, uh, that's where all the helo guys, so all the, at this point now, obviously it's just pilots. So Navy Marine and, um, and coast guard helicopter pilots are now all kind of together. And at this point, you guys are still not considered full fledged aviators. Like you don't have any wings at all. Okay. Nope. No wings. Okay. All right. So you show up there and what's, what happens next? All right. So first thing you do, uh, as you do it. Every military course ever, you have a couple of weeks of academics. Uh, so this one was a little more intensive than the one in primary. Uh, so uh, this is the advanced stage for us. For the jets, they have an intermediate as well. But for uh, helicopter guys, we just go straight from primary to advanced. Hmm. So you have a couple of weeks of academics learning how how does a helicopter fly? How does it work? Um, the helicopter aerodynamics. So maybe they'll just start playing your podcast from the other day and just have everyone listen to that uh, just to learn how that all works. Um, But then so you just learn all that and then you start learning specific TH-57. So TH-57 B Bravo is where you start. So that's just a variant of the Bell 206. I know you're familiar with that airframe. Yeah. So Um, we would call that a TH-67, but they're essentially the same aircraft. Just painted differently, I think. Yep. <laughs> so just two two blades up top, one little engine in the middle. I I can't remember. I think it was like max max weight of like twenty four hundred pounds or something ridiculous yeah, like that. Small. Um so the we start in the fifty seven Bravo. So that is just as basic an aircraft as you can get. Um so just that's where you learn how to hover. So I think on one of your interviews they said you learn how to do autos and stuff first yeah but we actually start with hovering so the mm. first thing you do is start learning how to hover the aircraft oh so you go out we have i think three there are three outlying fields uh near whiting you go out there with your instructor and you have just these boxes and you start out trying to stay in these boxes <laughs> and uh i i had a phenomenal on wing he was a great instructor and he was really good at just getting you to chill, just mellow out, kind of distract you. So 
you know, start with just a cyclic and then just a collective, right. just the pedals, and then slowly start moving them together. Um, and I remember at one point we had drifted way off of my concrete box and we're now approaching some trees and a fence. And he just, he looks at me and says, you better not hit that tree. <laughs> and I was like, if I could not hit the tree, if I was good enough at hovering, I would have just stayed in my box back right. there. But, you know, somehow I guess when, when the alternative is hit a tree, it started clicking a little bit. And just like, just like they say, you know, you had that about five hours, you get the hover button or however you want to call it. Yeah. All of a sudden something just clicks and you just suddenly know how to hover. Yeah. You're not great uh, at it, but you can do it. No, yeah. but you can do it. You can stay in your, you know, your 40 by 40 concrete box. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we learned that's, you know, it's very similar. It's also called the contact phase, same as same as they called it in primary. Just learning how to fly, just generic stuff. You get some EP stuff. Uh, you do learn how to do autos. Uh, they roll, just you'll be flying, and they just roll the throttle back on you and uh, say simulated. And you got to set yourself up for an auto. And incidentally, this is the only time that we're allowed to do full autos in the Navy. Uh, so we actually, you know, take them all the way to the deck. So we do the auto rotation all the way, all the way through until we're landed on deck, uh, um, on whatever, whatever field you're training over. Um, so that culminates with your, uh, with your contact check ride. So basically just getting you a full check, you know, EPs, the, the brief is a couple hours long going over every system there is and just making sure you know how to fly a, a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, once that's done, you transition over to the TH-57 Charlie, which is the same Bell 206, but it has some AFCS, so automatic flight control system functions. Um, so... It's a it's IFR rated now, so a little bit bigger console up in front of you with a lot more information. Um, and in there, you're learning how to fly form. You do some VFR navigation, so low-level stuff. You start learning how to uh, navigate, you know, using a chart, getting getting around the local area, low-level or low-ish level. At mm-hmm. the time, I thought it was low-level. Right. <laughs> couple hundred feet uh, but that was really low yeah exactly um and then you also are doing uh ris and vis so radio instruments and basic instruments mm-hmm. so learning how to fly the helicopter in uh in the ifr realm uh with on instruments getting controlled by controllers uh and this is where i really started learning what the kind of how to how a crew works mm-hmm. i remember you know, in, in primary, they're training you because so many guys go and fly, you know, single seat fighters. They're training you to fly by yourself. Now, in advance, it's where they start really pushing the CRM, the crew resource management. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, they set me up for it. He tells me, okay, shoot this approach. And so I'm, I'm fumbling around. I got the stick and I'm trying to fly and I got my kneeboard and I have I'm trying to handle the are the uh radios and the approach plate and all this stuff and the instructor just looks at me he's like what why aren't you using me why i'm here Mm. i'm i'm part of the crew let give me something to do right and and it really started clicking there and that's that's when i really fell in love with the helicopters because you never you don't fly by yourself you 
you have somebody else in the crew who is helping you, helping you fly, helping you tune radios or brief the approach or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and then towards the end of the RIBI syllabus, you, uh, you do a cross country uh, with your, usually with your on-wing and your, your on-wing partner. So you usually paired up with another student and one on-wing and you go, we went down to Key West from Pensacola, which in a Bell 206 takes, yeah. uh, every, took every bit of 12 hours to get wow. down there, uh, going all the way around. We weren't allowed to go over water at all. Sure. So we had to go around and with gas stops and everything. It took a while. Um, that was a great time. You know, you get out there and uh, you're out there with your buddies and you're a pilot and you go out in town. It's awesome. Sure. Uh, so then uh, the other small stage, you have a few NVG flights. So your first experience flying on goggles is in advanced. Um, usually with the, uh, they have Marine MOTS 1 instructors who are kind of the subject matter experts on the, uh, the Navy Marine Corps side on flying on goggles. So they teach you, really teach you how to fly on goggles for the first time. And then you do your uh, solo cross country. So they call it solo, but you're, you're with another student who's either at your stage or slightly more advanced. Uh, maybe they've completely finished the syllabus and they're just waiting a wing or whatever. Um, and you do a solo cross country. So it's just, it's, we call it a cross country. Really. It's just an out and in you go from Florida or from Pensacola. Got it. We went to, um, here we go. Uh, can't remember the name of the, the town, Mobile, Alabama, landed, uh, got some pizza and flew back. <laughs> so that's kind of your, the culmination of your time is they give you a, you and another person, a helicopter and say, go, go somewhere else right. and get gas, you know, handle all this on your own. And it, I actually, I, we flew, you had to do one IFR leg and one VFR leg. So on the way out, we decided to fly file IFR because the weather was gross. You know, we went in the clouds at 1,200 feet, and I didn't see it again until we broke out on the ILS at, wow. you know, 500 feet or something like that. And that was when I really realized, like, holy cow, I can do this. Right. Like, I just, I went in the clouds, however far away Milton is from Pensacola, 50, 70 miles, something like that. And I came out, and the next time I saw the ground was over the airport I intended to end up at. Yeah. Um, so it's a great confidence booster for that. And, and then that's, that's basically the syllabus. So at this point you've had a hundred hours fixed wing time and then you've had how much rotary wing at this point? About, about another hundred. Okay. Um, I think I've finished, I've finished those two stages of flight school with like two, two twelve, something like that. So, you know, everyone's 200 plus or minus. Okay. Well, that's, that's a lot of time though for, for training. Um, yeah. I want to say when I graduated flight school, it was maybe over just over a hundred hours, but of course we didn't do okay. any fixed wing, you know, it was all, it was all really yeah. wing, but, um, cause I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, you're, you're in a, a, a bell 206, you're doing MVGs, um, which we didn't do, you know, in the army until you get to your advanced aircraft. We did instruments, but we did never did anything solo with instruments. Um, but I mean, by the time we're doing instruments, I mean, you're probably at gosh, 50 hours total time, I think. So oh, boy. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah. 
it would be terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was actually doing doing my instrument check uh, last week or the week before, just my recurrent, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in a turn talking on the radios in a descent, and I I told my my copilot, I was like, man, I'm trying to imagine back to flight school if they had given me a turn, a descent, oh, and yeah. uh, they had me swap to a uh, final the final controller all at the same time. And yeah. I would my head would have just exploded. Yeah. And I didn't even think twice about it. So yeah. it's it's amazing how far you go from, you know, that fifty ish hours when you start flying a three hundred mile per hour uh <laughs> or mm-hmm. two hundred mile an hour at T thirty four in the clouds to now. Yeah. Well and you brought up a good point too, you know, helicopter flying is, is very much a team effort. Um, you know, I like to joke with the fighter guys, like, well, if you can do it single pilot, it must not be very hard, you know, cause, cause it is, <laughs> it is both people working, you know, a hundred percent of the time in a helicopter, um, you know, for the, for the most part. So there, there's a yeah. lot going on and you, you really can't Definitely. afford to, to just sit there and be a passenger in the front. You know, you, you, you gotta be a contributing member of the team. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's essentially the ending of the advanced training at that point. Yep. Okay. Yep. So then, then you you wait around uh, until winging. So when I was there, they were doing wingings. I think once a month. It might have been once every three weeks. And mm-hmm. so somewhere between when you complete the syllabus and and when you actually get your wings, you choose a an actual platform. So okay. in the Navy, that's either the MH60 Romeo. MH60 Sierra or the CH53, which I think they're currently on Echoes, might be swapping a kilos, not 100% on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then your location. So you put in a, a dream sheet and you rank, you know, all the all the aircraft with the location. And you can put on there, you know, I prefer a location over platform. So mm-hmm. some people, okay. they bound and determined they want to go to san diego they don't care what they fly they don't care if it's the romeo or the sierra they want to go to san diego uh i wanted to go to japan so i i put uh h60 sierras and h60 romeos japan first on my list so uh and then you just find out somewhere in there i was actually on vacation i was uh, at a my brother-in-law's wedding uh so i just got a got a phone call from from the student control officer and said, Hey, congratulations. You got H60 Romeos out of Japan. It's like, sweet. Okay. And then, and then you have your winging. So that's, that's the big, the big day. Everyone, you know, dress uniform, family comes in and you, the coast guard guys and the, and the Marines all stand together. You get your wings, someone pins them on you. Uh, and then you have a couple of parties. So you have the, the over torque, which is the command sponsored one, uh, right after, right after with all the family and the, the instructors, I think, I think it was when I was there, bought some kegs and you have the class before you, I think pays some money in for the food and you just, everyone kind of gets together and hangs out. And then you have your winging party that is funded by your class for everybody who's in, in all the squadrons together. Uh, get together and have a have a party in usually downtown Pensacola, and uh, it's at this point that you're a you're a fully winged naval aviator. So whether you're Navy, Marine Corps, or uh, or Coast Guard, you're a naval aviator. 
And, and that's to go back to your question earlier, this is the point at which you can get your commercial ratings. So hmm. you go take a test. It's probably about an, not even an hour test. You pay a couple hundred bucks to take it, yeah. uh, to do military competency. And then you have a commercial fixed wing helicopter instrument, uh, helicopter and airplane, you know, uh, complex aircraft, high performance. You get all these fun endorsements. Okay, uh, that's cool. It's pretty a great deal for for everyone. Everyone gets to take advantage of besides besides yeah. the army guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, we get to do the same thing. Hell, it's probably the same guy. He probably drives down to Pensacola from from, from Fort Rucker. <laughs> but um, yeah, they would have a thing, and he would do like a uh, a review for like an hour. And then he would give you the test. And yeah, you know, I don't remember it being that long either. And of course, you know, that when you're in flight school, you're the smartest you'll ever be as far as yeah. test taking for, <laughs> for being a pilot. Um, and yeah, you know, for me, it was a long time ago, but I want to say it was two, $300 maybe. Um, yeah. And you would get, you know, commercial rotary wing and you'd get your instrument. And we couldn't take it until, I don't think we had to be, no, we didn't have to have wings, but I think we had to be through instrument, you know, phase, which, which made okay. sense. Um, but I, but I, I don't recall having to take it after being pinned on our wings. Cause, cause ours is a little bit different. It sounds like, so you guys are getting pinned your wings before you've even flown your, your chosen airframe or your advanced aircraft as we would call it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. You, you're, you finish advanced and that's, that's where you have your winging. Okay. All right. So you get winged. So where, where do you learn how to fly your, your advanced aircraft? All right. So the next, the next stage is, uh, called the FRS fleet replacement squadron. Uh, you'll typically hear Navy guys refer to it as the RAG. Uh, back back in the day, it was uh, replacement air group, I think RAG, and it yeah. just stuck. Everyone, most people say it, call it the RAG, and sure. the FRS is just, you know, it's a mouthful. Yeah. So most people call it the RAG. So you go there um, for Romeo guys, like I, I was. You are either go to Jacksonville or San Diego. Mm-hmm. I got lucky. Got to go to San Diego. Uh, so I went PCS to San Diego and, uh, first thing did was go to SEER. Mm-hmm. So you do the, the full SEER Charlie, yeah. I think yeah, level. Charlie. So out in the field doing all that fun stuff. And you guys do that there at San Diego or is that a different site? Yeah, we had, there's a, the Navy has an East coast and a West coast site. The mm-hmm. East coast one, I think is in Maine. Mm-hmm. The the West Coast one is north of north of San Diego in the uh, Julian area. Okay. And it's about probably three weeks. Uh, it's a week of academics and a week of field. Okay. Um, yep. So you do that, and then uh, academics for for the FRS with RAG. So this is where now now they assume you know how to fly because you're everyone's winged aviators, and they they you're learning your advanced aircraft. So there's separate rags for Romeos and Sierras. Um, I went obviously to the Romeo one, and you're learning just how how does how does a 60 fly versus how did a 57 fly? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's 10 times the size. Um, you know, 20,000 plus pounds of of max gross weight. Uh, two engines, four blades up top, four blades on the back wheels so you're not hover taxiing yeah. anymore <laughs> and uh you learn all that so a few weeks of that and you have a bunch of uh sims 
uh, me and uh, about three of my classmates went. Uh, there was an open sim block when we first got there. We're starting sims. We're like, okay, we're good. let's get ahead of the the curve. We got our, you know, we got our graded first graded sims tomorrow or day after or whatever it was. Let's let's get in the sim in this open sim block and just practice stuff. Yeah. And we sat in there and you know we're following the checklist and we realized we couldn't find the starter. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's four four naval aviators in here with you know thousands of pages of documents and nowhere does it say where the starter is it says press the starter right you know engage starter engage but uh no one could had any idea where it was so we ended up having to call the the guys who run the sims a civilian uh <laughs> like computer nerd dudes to come in and show all these guys who thought we were hot shit how to start the <laughs> helicopter where the button even was right um <laughs> which i'm sure he didn't so, tell anyone else about that <laughs> oh no i'm sure he didn't um <laughs> So, so then, yeah, so then you're doing Sims. So these are, you know, now we've gone from kind of the JV level Sims that were, you know, in Florida that were older than my parents to now where these are the multi-million dollar full motion in some cases. Some of them were static, but some were full motion, amazing visuals, all this crazy stuff. Uh, and we're learning how to, how to fly the, the 60. So you do some sims, and then you you start doing fam flights. Again, you have an on wing. Uh, I was paired up with one other one other person with this uh, particular on wing, and start learning how to fly. So you're flying out of San Diego. Uh, you go down to what's called Imperial Beach. That was our outline field south of San Diego, basically on the border with Tijuana. And you just sit there, and you just you know you learn how to fly an aircraft that has just insane amount of power compared to anything you've flown up to this point right um not allowed to do full autos anymore we had to recover you know mm -hmm. 30 40 feet yeah. so that was kind of sad kind of missed that i guess i don't know uh and then you do what's called your natops check so our our document our manual for each individual aircraft individual aircraft is called the natops uh, so you do your NATOPS check. So this is where you're becoming a pilot qualified and model. Uh, so now you're you're allowed by the Navy, you're qualified to fly the aircraft. So at this point, you only have probably maybe 20 or 30 hours, if that, in the 60. Uh, but you pass this NATOPS check, and now, now they've basically blessed, okay, this guy knows how to fly this aircraft. We're good with that. And then you move into tactics. So... You move into the tactics phase. This is uh, very heavily skewed towards the sim side, uh, just because it's you know it's expensive to expend ordnance, and uh, it's uh, and it's much it you get a much more robust tactical syllabus being in the sims because we could link link different sims. You know you could link sims in San Diego to Jacksonville to Fallon to Japan, and you can link all these sims together and do these large force type exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're learning how to how to fight the aircraft at this stage. So you're learning more more single aircraft stuff. So the H60 Romeo is a multi mission. That's where the M M M and MH60 comes from. So we're part of the helicopter maritime strike community. So that's that's what it's known as within within the Navy HSM. So we do surface warfare. Uh, in that capacity, we have we carry Hellfire missiles, 
APKWS rockets, and uh, we also employ crew served weapons out the back. Uh, no forward firing uh, cruiser or uh, guns, but mm-hmm. just ones run by the the uh, sensor operator in the back. And we have the 50 cal and the 7.62 crew served weapons. And then, kind of our bread and butter in the Romeo community, that something that no one else does is anti-submarine warfare. Uh, so in that uh, kind of in that vein, we carry torpedoes to you know shoot shoot the submarines but in order to find them we have a a dipping sonar so we're able to come to a 70 foot hover over the water and lower this this big couple hundred pound we call it the dome down into the water a couple thousand feet down even Hmm. uh, deep and find submarines Um, so that puts noise out in the water finds a submarine tells us where it is and we can you know whether Obviously, most of the time we're just tracking it, uh, seeing where they are, who it is. Uh, we also employ buoys, so we have called sauna buoys, which we spend into the water, and they listen, listen for submarines or other ship noises, uh, things like that. So, in the tactics phase, that's really what you're learning how to do: is fight the aircraft, how to use all your your weapon systems. And then one of the last things you do in the RAG is uh, DLQs, deck landing qualification. So you do day and night, uh, you fly out. Usually there's a couple guys in the back, so you can uh, trade off, but you fly out with an instructor and you land on the back of a small ship. So I did mine on the back of a cruiser. So you start out with days, uh, you do, I don't remember how many bounces. I want to say you had to do six to a, to a landing. And we have a, what's called the trap is on the, on the ship and we have a probe that extends out the bottom of the aircraft that is caught in that trap. Mm. So you have to land with the probe in the trap, uh, six times and, during the day. And then once it gets dark, you go do it at night. So we, at the time, for some reason, they were not having you do it on goggles uh, for your initial DLQs. Uh, that has since changed. So now your, your night DLQs are done on goggles. And that's, that's usually about the last thing you do at the rag and then you have what's called the soft patch so soft patch ceremony everyone goes to the o club on a thursday afternoon and it's all the squadrons pretty much are there so in san diego there's yeah probably i think there's about eight romeo squadrons and everybody shows up to the uh to the o club and there's pizza and you somebody from your squadron comes and puts their squadron patch on you Hmm. um and that's how you, that's your first, first time that you're, you're not a student. You're not really thought of as a student anymore. Now you're actually, you have the patch for, in my case, HSM 77. Now I'm, I'm going to be a member of HSM 77. And, uh, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool feeling, feeling of family can come, you know, everybody's hanging out and you get that camaraderie. There's no more student instructor. It's just, it's, right. it's just a bunch of pilots hanging out. Because yeah, at this point, I mean, you've been doing this for, gosh, uh, more than a year. Yeah. So you six, about, I mean, by the time you start API to the time of the API, call it three months, another six months of primary, uh, eight months of advanced and almost a year of FRS. So, yeah, I mean, I commissioned in September of 11 and I completed the FRS in June of 14. 
So almost three years of flight school. Wow. That's incredible. And you, and you yeah. said the FRS, which it would be you, all of the learning for the, the, the age 60 was about a year. Yep. Uh, yeah, right about wow. probably, probably, I mean, more like 10 months, you know, I got sure. there, I got there in July, had Sear and finished up in June of okay. the next year. So really about 10 months, actual syllabus time. Wow. And I guess uh, I would imagine a majority of that is eaten up by the tactics phase. Yeah, probably two thirds of it. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Cause I'm thinking about, you know, in the army, the, the Blackhawk guys, I mean, their, their courses, I don't want, I want to say like eight weeks. Um, but you know, but they're not employing hellfires or torpedoes, you know, all these things. No, I mean, they're literally, yeah. you know, take off and land somewhere and, and, and doing formation flights and, and practicing, uh, some level of air assaults. But, but I think too, you guys are probably, it sounds to me, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds to me, you guys are more, I want to say combat ready coming out of flight school where you're going to go to your unit and you're, you're plug and play versus, in the army, you know, you're kind of getting the basics in flight school and then you're going to your unit and you're learning a lot of the, the advanced stuff at the unit level. So what happens when you guys, now you're done with school, you go to Japan in your case, you know, what's it like integrating with the new unit? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I met my squadron on the ship. Well, actually I met them in Busan, Korea. They were having a port call. So, you know, I PCS to Japan with the wife. Uh, we were there for a few couple weeks and then i i flew to busan korea to meet meet the ship uh showed up we had two days of port call left and you know i i show up at the boat and my sponsor comes up to me he's like hey nice to meet you we're leaving uh get whatever stuff you want let's let's go into town it's like okay i basically grabbed a toothbrush because i was thinking at this i mean i don't have a hotel room or anything i'll right. be coming back I, I don't even think i grabbed a toothbrush i think i had to buy one of those and uh we just left and you know we went out in town and i met the squadron in the a port call which is still just i mean absolutely it's as much fun as i've ever had <laughs> is uh hanging out in port calls uh with with your squadron so i kind of trial by fire just start met met these guys uh, and gals out out in korea you know i ended up sleeping on my sponsor's couch and having to go back the next day uh to the ship to find some clothes to wear and take a shower and stuff and then went right back out um so then you know we get on we got underway out of korea and it's exactly like you said you're plug and play so you're what's uh, known there as a level one Called. So you're you're allowed to go out on flights with an aircraft commander for an actual you know an actual flight in support of the carrier's mission. And so I went out and started you know learning learning how to fly around an aircraft carrier, learning how to fly around ships uh, way out over water. Um, and you're you're expected to be be ready to do that. And then you start working on um, level two. So Level two, you're level one already. You start working on your level two quals. So, at the end of level two, uh, level two is specifically geared towards tactical stuff. So, tactical employment of basically a, a section or your aircraft, how to really fight your aircraft without any instructing. So, if if you went out with just 
some other some random guy who didn't know about tactics, you could still fight the aircraft is essentially where you're getting to at a level two right. and uh, becoming a two P. So H two P just kind of just a slightly more advanced uh, wall within the aircraft. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything. It's more of a check, kind of a check a couple, about six, six or eight months in is where you're, you're hitting your two P level. So you're expected to make it by then. Uh, you usually have a board and a, and you just it's a syllabus event, and then that's that's kind of an e- an easier one, and that's followed by level three and hack. So you what you guys just call pilot pilot and commander PCs we call hack helicopter aircraft commander, hmm. and that's you usually hit that about eighteen to twenty four months after you get to the squadron. Mm-hmm. So that's. In order to get to that level, you need to be able to fight a section of aircraft. So you and another aircraft going out and doing either surface warfare or submarine warfare, you need to be able to run the section uh, basically autonomously, as well as show kind of the responsibility and decision-making to be able to sign for an aircraft. So that usually happens. I think I hit mine uh, about 20 to 22 months, somewhere in there, uh, is where I made aircraft commander. And all all through this time, so one of kind of the unique things about the Navy, the way we run it, is your your primary job as an officer in a squadron is really your ground job. Yeah. So whether that's being a, a sketch rider or you're you're a maintenance division officer or aircrew division officer, whatever it is, that's kind of your main your main job on the day to day is to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I also need you to make level three and aircraft commander um, because each each squadron, we have everything to run the entire squadron within our squadron. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have functional check pilots, uh, which you call, I think, call maintenance test pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have those within our squadron. All of maintenance is controlled within our squadron. So we can we can take our squadron anywhere and fix the aircraft, schedule the aircraft, fly the aircraft all within our 250-ish person squadron. And how many aircraft in the squadron? Uh, ours had eight, uh, which is a small Romeo squadron. I think most Romeo squadrons are 10. Okay. And this was on a carrier, right? Right. So I HSM-77, where I was, was a uh, carrier-based squadron. So we would have five aircraft on the carrier, two aircraft, and what's called the shotgun cruiser. So the the ship that kind of sails around with the carrier to help protect it. Mm. And then we would always have one aircraft and some sort of major maintenance back at home. Okay. Um, yeah. I was going to also... ask that how that was de- delineated between, cause I knew you, you also had aircraft on the smaller ships, but so you're saying it's sliced mm-hmm. off from the carrier squadron. Do you guys rotate out there or is it just for this part of the cruise, you guys are going to be on the, the destroyer or whatever. Yeah. So you would, you would kind of rotate on a, basically a every six months or so a different debt roughly uh would we call them debts or combat element would go over to the small ship take their two two birds and go over there uh there's also expeditionary squadrons uh in the romeo community who their only job is to supply a two bird debt to small ships so they'll have they might have six or eight debts on you know six or eight different ships sure and that's all they do. They don't have any anyone on the carrier. Gotcha. 
Yeah, because the Navy's not just carrier battle groups. There's there's other just ships kind of out there doing their own thing or smaller, I guess, squadrons or, or what have you. But And that's right. what's populating those. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, well, that makes a lot more sense as far as Navy flight school taking as long as it does because, like you said, you're, you're kind of slotting in and, I mean, your first flight could be actual you know, combat or you know, combat support type mission, whereas for like the army, it, it would not be, you know, you're, there's still some training that has to be done uh, at the unit level to kind of refine your skills. So, okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes yeah. a lot more sense. On my, my, my first night flight, I got some on top time with a, a different country's submarine. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you really, wow. you just, you go out there and you're just ready to do it. And that was, that was yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So, I mean, what are you doing now? You're you're obviously not on a carrier. <laughs> no. So uh, after I finished with the fleet tour, so most most uh, aviation, your first fleet tour is 36 months. Uh, mine ended up, I ended up getting extended out there to uh, 42 months. After I finished that, uh, I came to uh, Whidbey Island, and now I'm doing search and rescue. Uh, so this is a shore tour. So all aviators in the Navy, you'd go. Sea, sea tour, short tour, sea tour, short tour. Uh, so I'm on my first JO, uh, junior officer, short tour. So uh, I got I transitioned over to the MH60 Sierra. Uh, that was about a about a six week transition course, just to kind of learn the the few minor differences between the Romeo and the Sierra. The Sierra is is literally just it's an Army Blackhawk mm-hmm. uh, that the Navy bought and it's a truck. So there's not really anything in it. It's got an ox fuel tank and that's pretty much it. Uh, so flying search and rescue. So primary thing we do here at Whidbey Island is in support of the jets. So the jet was to punch out somewhere here in Northern, Northern Washington or anywhere in Washington. We're the first call. So we go pick them up, whether they're in the water or they're in the mountains or whatever. So we spend uh, a ton of our time training in the mountains, high altitude stuff, mm. uh, learning how to operate there. Uh, thankfully, jets don't punch out very often. Mm. Uh, we haven't had an actual jet emergency in a while, knock on wood. Uh, so we're actually able to provide our services uh, to the state of Washington. So we're at about 55 missions, I think, this year uh, of civilian SAR whether it's search and rescue out in the mountains or medevacs, uh, we're able to provide that on a, as long as it's on a non, not to interfere basis with our primary military duties. So we're pulling pulling people off of uh, the side of Mount Rainier uh, down south of Seattle, Mount Baker. You know, we're doing these missions up at seven, eight, nine, ten thousand feet. Uh, it's it's been a an awesome tour. I'm actually almost done with it. Unfortunately, it's been incredible being able to do the flying and stuff up here but uh yeah it's it's been incredibly rewarding to be able to come up here so what's next for you awesome my next gig and uh, this is definitely something i i made a note uh to make sure i talked about uh they don't they don't advertise when you sign up for uh for naval being a naval aviator the uh disassociated sea tour so all all naval aviators are expected after their first short tour to do what's called the Dis- disassociated sea tour. Um, it works out a little differently for the different communities. Uh, the jet community is really short on people. 
So they actually typically end up getting to go back to a flying tour. But for the maritime PA guys and helo guys, we have to go be ship's company on a uh, on a boat somewhere. Mm. So I am going to be uh, an air operations uh, officer on the USS America, which is uh, an amphibious assault ship or amphibious. Uh, I don't remember the. I should probably learn exactly <laughs> what it's called. <laughs> but basically, a small aircraft carrier sure. uh, based in Japan. So I'm going to be working in the, the operations side of that, as uh, you know, working in the tower, hmm. figuring all that stuff out. So that's that's my next gig. So that'll be about two years. So uh, it's amazing how many ROTC and Academy guys I've talked to uh, who've come up, you know, whether to Whitby or to to 77. And had no idea that a disassociated tour was even a thing. <laughs> um, so you basically, the Navy's got to get their their extra little PCU oh, yeah. for uh, a couple of years of going to be ship's company. Uh, no aviator really wants that. They're typically non-flying gigs. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's it's going to be painful, but it'll be it'll be a good experience. It's the the first time I've done something completely totally new uh, since I graduated college, really. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually really excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. No, and that's, you know, some some of my favorite jobs in the military didn't really revolve around flying. Because um, you do get some exposure to things that you normally wouldn't do. And, and of course, yeah, you, you always miss it. And you, you miss just getting in the cockpit and doing a thing. But um, inversely, I think, you know, if you sit in a cockpit every single day, it just becomes it just becomes second nature, and it just becomes an everyday <laughs> thing. So you, you got to have something to kind of yep. spice spice life up a little bit. And I think that'll be an interesting uh, uh, assignment, and definitely definitely exposed yeah. to some things you normally wouldn't be. But uh, it's certainly an important point to note for anyone interested in military aviation is it ain't all about flying. There's always <laughs> another job somewhere some that somebody else needs you to fill. Um, yeah, I, I remember going through ROTC myself, and I, I commissioned as an as an armor guy. So I was in tanks, and, and and it seemed like there was no portion of ROTC that ever talked about life after being a platoon leader, you know. And, and that's all you pictured, you know. You, you come out of the out of ROTC thinking, "Well, I'm gonna be a platoon leader for for ten years," you know. And you're lucky to get eighteen months. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something to keep your eye on. So, well, that sounds exciting, and. Uh, yeah, this was really informative. I, I I knew very little about how the Navy worked. I, I'd heard of the RAG and and actually just read something the other day about the CAG and the uh, mm-hmm. you know that term coming from like you said kind of an older uh, way of of describing the the air group and and so a lot of these terms are starting to make more sense to me. But yeah. I think the Navy yeah, in so- particular has always been one of those branches that every, the rest of us are kind of scratching our head on. A lot of things, you know, particularly the <laughs> rank structure. The, your guys enlisted people just confuse the heck out of me. He's a seaman first class, machinist mate. You know, you're like, what? I don't yeah. know what any of that means. But, um, <laughs> but this was a good. I don't know why we can't just. I don't know why we can't just get on the same page as ever, especially with the officer ranks, where it's just why, yeah, why. <laughs> yeah, because even the Marines do it, so you guys need to catch up. But yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of historical uh, precedents for it. But um, a lot of a lot of tradition in the Navy. Yeah, there's there's a ton. Um, gosh, yeah, the the Navy guys that I've met in my own travels, particularly submarine guys, they have borderline craziness uh, traditions. Uh, but... They might be more than beyond borderline. Yeah, yeah. Just just getting on one of those things sounds crazy enough. But <laughs> um, no, but this was great. I appreciate you taking the time and, and reaching out to uh, to kind of inform the listeners about 
about the Navy Flight School in general and the experience of, of being a, a naval aviator in the rotary wing world. I think it's one of those, you know, you talk about the rotary wing world as a community, I think is, is one that's not really fully understood or appreciated, uh, which is quite frankly why I do this podcast. But but then you even peel back the layers of the onion more. And I think naval aviation, uh, rotary wing is, is even more misunderstood. You know, like I only had an inkling that you guys could carry armament uh you know on on the seahawks but but i mean it sounds like it's it's not just that you can do it but it is it is absolutely one of your tasks that you are prepared to do all the time definitely yeah so that's great and i think i think in the future we'll have to kind of explore that more but uh i think we've certainly run the clock down on on talking yeah. about uh <laughs> flight school because man three years i just i can't even wrap my head around that that's that is a huge amount of, i mean you probably got promoted during that time I did. Yeah. I went from an ensign to, I mean, shortly after I, I got to my fleet tour, I became a, a lieutenant. So Oh three. So, you know, two promotions in the course of that time and the jet guys, their pipelines even longer. They're almost all coming out of flight school as lieutenants. So Oh threes. Wow. Um, same with Marines. Marines are almost all, uh, Oh threes by the time they hit their fleet. Wow, Fleet yeah. squadron, and that starts to make a lot more sense for other things. When you think about scale, right? Of of position to rank, um, you know, in the army, you know, it, it, it's very rare to see a second lieutenant an O one uh, in aviation because they're all at flight school. Um, yeah, but they typically have just made you know first lieutenant O two, um, whereas our O threes, you know, I was I had more aircraft in my my troop as an O three than it sounds like you guys had in your whole squadron. On the carrier, you know, I had ten aircraft just that just belonged to me, of of a thirty aircraft squadron, wow. commanded by an O five. Where I assume your squadrons are also commanded by O fives. Yeah, um, yeah, our, our squadrons are O fives. Yeah, and but that have, guy hadn't you know, he got out of flight school to he was an O three. So it's it's interesting to see that dynamic of of the change between um, you know position and, and authorities and ranks and stuff. And, and I know the Marines on the illicit side do it kind of kind of different too you know i won't say weird but yeah. certainly different so just one one quick thing on that so i mean they they talk about the the term or the contract length so i think the air force is 10 years the navy's eight years but it doesn't start until you get your wings yeah so you've been in the navy for two years at that point and then and then you start your eight year tour so i mean i'm i'm coming off my second second uh actual tour here in a few months and my contract is still not even up until sometime next year. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting that they, they did that right here is where you're doing this disassociated tour. You, you'd think that yeah, they would want to give you the smart. sweet job. Yeah, exactly. To kind of sweeten the pot so you can re up because you're going to come off your contract, come off a job that you may hate. And yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. The Navy, <laughs> you know, just, they all have their own whatever. way of kind of doing it, doing it weirdly. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but a good point for everyone to make sure you read the fine print in the contract of when that <laughs> eight years actually starts. So, yep. well, at any rate, I cool. appreciate you taking the time on the on a Sunday afternoon to talk to us. Definitely, yeah. Thank you, thank you for having me on here. And I I just joined the Discord, so if anyone has any questions, you're welcome to to shoot them over to me. I've I've never been on Discord before, so <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. But yeah, I'm I'm here. All right, well, just ignore all the Navy jokes, and uh, we're, we're happy to have you aboard. So. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. Yeah, so the thing that I really picked up um, 
through Alex's interview with you was the the some similar similarities uh, between how the Army and the Navy does business, but also uh, one big glaring difference I see. You mentioned halfway through the podcast or or towards the end, I guess. Um, oh wow, you know, you guys spend almost what was it, two to three years uh-huh. in the training pipeline versus. In the army, you spend about twelve to fourteen, maybe fifteen months at Fort Rucker, and then you're out in the unit. But what was highlighted to me was uh, when you come out of the the USN pipeline, whether it be fast movers, cargo, resupplied, um, helos, whatever, uh, you are a mission pilot. So what we would consider RL one, right? You show up to the fleet. And you can, you're, you're basically a fully qualified dude that can go fly a mission. That's different to how the army does it, where you come out of flight school and you, you go to a unit and you still have some training to do. Now you're a fully qualified aviator in that you have your wings, uh, but you're not really to the point where you can go hop into an Apache and fly, you know, a night mission at low level and um, shoot up a bunch of targets without additional training. So there's some indoctrination that happens in the unit that would still be considered training, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, So I think all in all, it probably ends up closer to parity with the Navy's 24 months to, you know, I would put it at 24 months by the time you're signed off. Oh yeah. RL1 in the army. So so a different way of doing it with the with the same result, I guess, in the end. It's just there's more of a training burden on the unit in the Army than there is on the operational force unit in the Navy. Yeah, you sh- I, I think... You show up ready to go. At the end of the day, you're, you're spending basically the same amount of time to get to that level of proficiency. Because, you know, he was talking about he got out of flight school and he's already in 03, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and you think about it, uh, an O three in the army has been has been doing the job for a while at that point, and he's probably already a pilot in command. He's probably already, you know, been able to do flight lead type stuff, AMC, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, so yeah, so I agree. You're kind of end up in the same point. It's just basically where's the money coming from to get him to that point? Is it at the unit level? Is it at the schoolhouse? Um, I, I think another resource challenge that the that the Navy has, they probably don't see it as a challenge, but I, I think we probably look at it that way. Is you know they're spending a lot of time and energy getting guys trained up in fixed wing. I think he said like a hundred something hours. Oh yeah. Before you even start your, your advanced aircraft qualification, what we would call it. Right. Where you're going to your, your fleet aircraft, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm sure that none of them look at it as well. That's a waste of time because it's not really a waste, but for us, you know, we, we, we skip that part and just say, okay, well, we already know you're going to be a helicopter pilot. So we're going to, we're going to put you in a helicopter. Yeah. Well, if you flip that coin, there's, there's some dudes that, come out of the training pipeline at Rucker now, or when they get to aircraft selection, I should I should say. So all Common Core, we call it Common Core, everybody starts in a helicopter. Yeah. And then you go to aircraft selection, you get your AH-64, UH-60, CH-47, or if they're available, you can choose fixed wing. So kind of flipping that coin where everybody starts in fixed wing in the Air Force and the Navy and then goes to rotary wing if they get that platform. It's the opposite in the Army. Everybody starts in common core rotary wing. And then if you get tracked into fixed wing, that's your advanced track and you go to fixed wing training later on. No, but yeah, it was super interesting. Um, and and I was I, I agree with you. That was kind of the number one thing I took away from it is, is uh, 
very different very different result on the far end but as we've discussed i, I think the time is still spent there it's just a matter of where you're doing it so uh, but yeah, super thankful for Alex for, for coming on. And uh, we actually do have a Air Force uh, pilot lined up. Uh, I'm supposed to talk to him, I think, later this week. So we'll we'll get a look okay. at the Air Force experience as well and kind of compare notes and see where everything pans out. Yeah, with the Air Force coming, you better make sure you have like hors d'oeuvres lined up and, <laughs> yeah. you know, some little snacky snacks. And He did say he wanted only green M&M. So. Yeah, there we uh, go. Yeah, so. All right. Well, yeah, I guess we'll uh, wrap it up here. Um, appreciate everyone listening. And again, for sending in the questions, please send in more. We love it. We've got a few more that we'll uh, address on the next episode. Uh, but send them to us via email, Facebook, Reddit. And uh, if you are so inclined and want to support the channel, we have uh, open up a Patreon page. So just find us there, Low Level Hell Podcast, and take a look. We've got some different tiers, some different things that, that come along with it. If you have any ideas for other uh, different perks for tiers, I'm, I'm all ears, happy to hear them. So send them to us as well. But as always, please uh, like and subscribe to the show. It helps us get the word out, spread it around to your friends. And uh, appreciate you guys stopping by. And as always, stay safe. And- Bye, say. I'll talk to you next time. Get to the chopper! <laughs>